listeners, welcome to another footnote episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. All right, today we're doing a term that not only do I feel like I couldn't define, but I don't think I can say out loud, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> Anthropomorphism. Yes. Okay, well, that's a good start. Sort of, yeah. Right, we're going to talk about anthropomorphism, what it is, how it functions, how to define it. I feel like we skirted over this topic quite a few times and probably name drop a few academics that that talk about it, but I think it's good to go over it one more time and give give listeners a sort of uh, snapshot view on what it means and the different types of it. Are you up for it, Chris? Yeah, let's let's go and attribute some human-like qualities to (laughs) non-human objects. Okay, you've got 10 minutes. Your time starts now. What is it? So it's the attribution of non-human-like qualities to non-human objects. You're enjoying I, that catchphrase I've developed. Uh, I did. Um, right. So I think that, I suppose the crucial thing with anthropomorphism is that it's a, a hybrid mixture, a figuration between anthropo and morphe. So anthropo, um, human-like, anthropology, for example, anthropo, and morphe, um, objectness, if you like, the, the objectness of something. So it's human-like objects, and it's that sort of hybrid figuration that has really, it's as old as animation is, really, if we think about um, Mickey Mouse, but even, you know, of course, animation doesn't begin with Disney, but going kind of further back, it is the attribution of human-like qualities, thought processes, um, sentience, um, a degree of subjectivity mm-hmm. to non-human um, objects, and also often animals. So we often think about, yeah, well, it's any non-human object. But the history of animation sort of tells us that one of the ways in which we think about anthropomorphism is is often through animals. So the, the ascription yeah. of, of human-like qualities to, to animals for the purposes, essentially, of performance and, and characterization. Right. I think that's an important thing just to just to, to make explicit because yeah. I think a lot of people will think it just means animals no um, yeah. and it doesn't You're, it means any object that is not human that is made more human-like is that yes. right yes so I mean you know obviously this speaks to loads of things in fantasy literature and and mythic storytelling traditions that I might be interested in but it sounds like it could be as simple as like I don't know being annoyed that it's raining because you're a because tr- you're arguing that the rain is somehow um, getting in the way of your day or deliberately trying to taunt you. What you're doing there is adopting some sort of anthropomorphic tendency in that you're turning the world yep. or giving a human-like quality to something in the world that doesn't have it. So it's actually quite a sort of basic human tendency yeah, yeah. Of, of, of how we kind of organise or think <laughs> through the world. So there are two, I suppose there are two good examples that speak to that. The first is Mother Earth. Yes, uh, okay, sure, yeah. And the second one is when you stub your toe on a coffee table and you turn around to a coffee table and go, why did you do that? Yeah, yeah, They're the yeah, two sort of... swear it or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, why did you jump out of nowhere yeah, and, yeah. and make me stub my toe? So there's that sort of, yeah, a way of seeing, which I think, as you say, is a sort of common almost a, a, a common way of thinking to attribute human consciousness to something um, in the same way that humans like order and like to classify things. I think there's a general need to to attribute human subjectivity to, as a way of, of building, um, you know, if we think about Mother Earth, a way of building affinity. And actually that's one, that's a really important thing. It's it's not just the ascription of human-like qualities. It's, it's believable and persuasive human-like qualities that allow us to um, hold an affinity with drawings or okay. with digital constructs. It's so that affinity that's important. Is it a way of identifying yeah. these things then? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely, because, because um, you know, there's a lot around the sort of nuanced characterization and, 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 and the way in which characters are symptoms of the world that contains them. So, of course, one of the ways that characters are believable is their partiality of knowledge, um, the way in which they attribute certain kinds of... Um, 
properties that we would associate with with human consciousness. So uh, a lot of the ways in which the, the Looney Tunes characters have been talked about is that some embody the, the id, some embody the ego, and some embody the superego. Um, some characters are angry, some are sarcastic, uh, and some are sort of, I don't know, um, coded as heroic and, and so lots and lots of different ways in which characterize that and, and, and at the heart of animation is is really you, you could say performance and and um, kind of char- character animation which is a, a, a certainly in the contemporary era it's a, it's part of the workflow of, of, of animated films that there are certain animators that are not dealing with backdrops that aren't dealing with landscapes or effects they are dealing with character animation they are focused on the furrowed eyebrows of Shrek or yeah. they are interested in the way that Mulan's mouth kind of upturns when she smiles. Those sorts of focused ways of thinking about character, uh, of course, extends to anthropomorphism where you're trying to give human-like qualities and consciousness to something that doesn't have those things. So I guess, you know, to be really blunt, animation, in a way, is a form of anthropomorphism. Yes. In that you are trying to give human-like qualities or or in the sense that you're trying to give life to to a drawn object. So... um, I'll and is, is it yeah. that if that's true, yep. is that the reason why it's done so much, or are there some less theoretically abstract reasons no, why th- anthropomorphism is such a sort of? I think it's a key thing people think is associated with animation. Yes. Um, yes, so, yes. So why is that? To ask an impossible question. No, no. Um, there's a bit. I, I've I've been interested in. I've written a little bit on anthropomorphism, and I have a small section in that chapter still available. Um, an article also available, mm-hmm. which is called a special relationship, and it is about animation's relationship to anthropomorphism. Um, anthropomorphism, of course, reaches back into kind of religious imagery, yep. to fantastical imagery, um, but it has found a really important home in moving images and specifically animation, because you just say they're almost synonyms for each other. If we think about the illusion of life, and so what better way to demonstrate animation's abilities if you're in the 1910s is to make a dinosaur come to life, or yeah. so it's. it's and also make dinosaurs come to life in a way that's oh they're just like us. So I think there's there's a degree of of um, similarity between the two terms that animation gives life and and, anim- and anthropomorphism kind of peaks that anomaly. I guess I would also throw in there you've talked a lot about sort of you know animation as the hand of of the artist and 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 you can say more to our listeners <laughs> as to where that comes from, but. I guess also in a way it's not anthropomorphic in that when you watch some rain, when you watch in, uh, the April showers sequence in Bambi, yep. uh, using the analogy of rain again, yep. that actually isn't ascribing a human quality to a non-human substance because the thing you're seeing on screen is the product of human creative in it. You know, someone has drawn the rain. Someone yep. has designed and animated the rain. So actually you're, you could argue that what you're seeing there is... Everything is human-like. Yeah, 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 because everything yes. is made by humans. Yes, um, yes, that's a good point. Yes, a lot of uh, uh, early animation, Donald Crafton coins this hand of the artist trope, which, um, going back to a previous episode that we, we looked at, um, the uh, lightning sketch tradition, that early animate, part of uh, early animation's image repertoire is the hand coming in and drawing um, because it's a hangover from from the lightning sketch staged tradition. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm, no, I'm looking at the time. We're running out of it quite rapidly. Yeah, go on. So, so I just want to say, so it's not always about animals, but it's often about animals. Yeah. So in a mm, couple of minutes, what is the difference then between Mickey Mouse yep. and Remy the rat from oh, Ratatouille? I thought you never asked. So uh, I'm interested in anthropomorphism as this collision between um, uh, kind of nature and culture, uh, and these two things are often in play in lots and lots of animated characters. We tend to, to kind of paint with a rather broad brush and call everything anthropomorphism or, or an example of an, an anthropomorph, to use the noun. Um, 
to describe anything where an animal or a non-human object has the um, uh, ability to pass off as, as human life. My argument in some of the stuff that I've, I've written is that there are differences in animated characters of degree as well as maybe kind. Uh, there are other terms that speak to the collision between um, the human and the non-human. So therianthropy, which is a term that's cropped up in a, in a couple of um, couple of podcasts. Um, therian means wild animal or beast, uh, and then of course anthropo means yeah. human being um, and that is more within the fantasy tradition of shape-shifting and metamorphosis so I would argue that Remy is more of, a, of an animal than a human and Mickey Mouse by virtue of the fact he wears clothes and I'm calling him a he and drives a steamboat yeah. is more therianthropy because there's more of a waiting I think towards his human-like characteristics and, and to speak for the listeners why does that matter because why introduce that term What's the, other than because we all like things we like to be term, nicely defined we? and yeah, nicely. Other than that, what's the, what's at stake by making that distinction between those two? I creatures? think it avoids calling everything anthropomorphism and actually gives a bit of nuance to the way that animators and artists and voice performers mm. and creative practitioners are casting an object in a role and working with it as part of a performance. Casting a lamp in a role and figuring out how I'm going to make this human. Like, am I going to destabilize and put put a little jacket on a on a Luxo lamp? No, no. No, I'm just going to keep it as a Luxo lamp and play with the proportions. Um, and so that I think that it, it gives a, it sharpens the way in which we, we think about that collision between the human and the non-human uh, and kind of opens up the term anthropomorphism to, to, to the different ways of approaching the anthropomorph across kind of um, animation culture. Right, so it's, it's a way of sort of, there is something different going on yes, when there, Mickey Mouse yes. walks down the street whistling and when Remy runs through a sewer yes. um, and is shunned away for being a rat. Yes, uh, yes, And it's yes, about yes, kind yes. of speaking to that. I think so, because, because animation is so varied and, and, yeah. and encompasses so many different um, ways of... of creating the illusion of movement, it makes sense that performance and character are afforded that same kind of scope. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you are. With 48 seconds left, where can listeners go to read more up about anthropomorphism should they wish to? Okay. So I'm definitely going to name check, sadly and unfortunately, but also gloriously, my uh, article um, from the Computer Animated Film, but a chapter on anthropomorphic subjectivity, which talks a little bit about Remy and, and that sort of special relationship between animation and anthropomorphism. Uh, and then a big uh, shout out to, to Paul Wells' book, The Animated Beastiary, which also talks about the sort of queerness of the. Um, of the anthropomorph as a, as a figure in flux, caught between two states, highly mobile, um, and also the role of the anthropomorph as being potentially metaphorical or, or political in, in films like Animal Farm and, and, and stuff like that. So the animal's not just an animal, it's something else. There's probably an entry on anthropomorphism in the John Clute Encyclopedia of yeah. Fantasy that I'll mention quite a few times in these episodes, great. I suspect, as well. There we go. Um, yeah, great. Well done, anthropomorphism in 10 minutes. Well done, Chris. Um, <laughs> listeners, uh, if you want more, or, or, or less. Or less. Well, if you want less, stop listening. Easy. Yeah, sure. If you want more and you want us to talk about something that you are struggling with on the podcast or um, in wider life as you engage with fantasy and animation, you know how to contact us. It's fananimresearch at gmail.com. F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. That's also the handle for our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram uh, accounts. So get in contact. Um, that's been us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.